0: Ezekiel chapter 8, local prophet hair lifted to Jerusalem. When we get to the verse where you think I might have gotten that from, let's just give a collective groan, okay? After every disaster, it seems customary to survey the damage, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado, closer to home, an earthquake, or a fire, we each can recall some image or images of Damage. Ezekiel's taken on a kind of damage survey. In a vision, he finds himself at the temple in Jerusalem. He's home at Tel Aviv, but he finds himself transported to Jerusalem. In his case, the damage to be surveyed was still in progress. And it was a spiritual damage being wrought against the temple of God in Jerusalem. And so we begin in verse 1. And it came to pass in the sixth year... In the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Chapter 8 begins a new section of the book. Through chapter 11, Ezekiel will be given a new set of visions. In them he will be shown the condition of the Jews back in Judah. He is in captivity in Babylon at Tel Abib. There are those back in Judah... Nebuchadnezzar has come twice to Jerusalem, uh, and he will come a third time uh, to destroy Jerusalem. It was around September of 592 B.C. We're given a pretty exact date. Uh, Ezekiel recalled the exact date. We talk about knowing where you were on, say, the day Neil Armstrong took one small step for man or one giant step for mankind. I can remember. You probably have a few spiritual dates like that yourself, I would hope. Dates on which God met you in a very special way. Maybe those of you who are saved as adults, the, the day you got saved, and then some other special things that the Lord did for you in your life. Hopefully there will be more of those as we wait for the Lord. The elders came to Ezekiel. It's a good sign when leaders are seeking the Word of God. We're not told why, they just they came We know from earlier uh, reading that Ezekiel didn't go out to them. They had to come to him. And so they were seeking the word of God. It's also good for them, leaders, to seek a word from God, which would be more technically accurate to what they were doing. With God's inerrant authoritative word to anchor us, we need to be seeking direction from Him. Where does He want to lead? What doors is He opening and which are shut or shutting. We are a people of the Word and the Spirit. It's not being led by God, by His Spirit, to simply determine decisions and direction based on my own wisdom. I I need to wait on the Lord. Especially in some of the uh, bigger life decisions. I I was talking to someone yesterday who's uh, contemplating a, a life decision and and I said, well, you know, we went over the pros and cons. And, you know, probably you guys have been taught and you do the, you know, you, you get the yellow pad out. It always has to be a yellow pad. This doesn't work on any other. I've tried. Have you tried this anything on white pads? It just doesn't work. I mean, they have white pads and actually they have all kinds of colored pads, but only yellow pads are uh, spiritual. <laughs> and so you draw the line, you know, and you get pros and cons or. How come it's not ever cons and pros? You know, I guess, but it's always pros and cons. And here are the reasons, you know, for doing something. Oh yeah, oh well, yeah, whoa, yeah, you know. And then, well, here are the reasons for not doing it, and and you weigh all of that out and using all your wisdom and stuff. And you know, sometimes that's not enough because you know there's some there's some con decisions in the in the Bible, aren't there? There's are some things that if you were just left to your own decision, you wouldn't do it. Or Paul the apostle. I mean, he's trying to go to different places. He goes, hey, I'm going to go over here and preach the gospel. And God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. That's not. I'm, if you just wait a little while, I'm going to send this guy to you in a vision and he's going to tell you to come over to Macedonia. That's where I want you and stuff. And so, you know, if Paul was the kind of guy who just depended on, you know, reading the the word and, and his own wisdom, his own wisdom told them to go and go and go. But God had a direction for him. And so you don't want to be you, you do want to be anchored in the word of God. You want to seek the word of God and see God in the word. But we also want to be aware of getting fresh words from God. Things we're not talking about, anything that would contradict the word of God, but just a direction from the Lord. And a lot of times you have to make a big decision. Uh, ask the Lord to just give you a scripture, say, Lord, you know, you're big enough to speak to me from your word tell me what you want me to do give me a verse and then don't don't you don't need to go looking for it if you're just spending time in the word if you have devotions or you're listening to the radio you're coming to church maybe your kids are having devotions maybe your wife sooner or later i think god will give you that answer and and it'll be just something wow or sometimes he's already given it to you but you haven't recognized it Uh, And so, ask the Lord to direct you. Ask for a word from the Lord as uh, as well as seeking the word of the Lord. And so then in verse 2, Then I looked and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of His waist and downward fire, and from His waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. If you're a comic book reader, you can't help but think of the human torch. It's like flame on, you know, he's got his flames going from from the waist down. In verse 4, Ezekiel is going to let us know that this is the same person he saw in chapter 1. Slightly different manifestation. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a very unusual one. He was almost fully on fire, but not quite, indicating that his judgment against Jerusalem was near, but not quite yet. Fire a picture of judgment in the Scriptures many times. Then in verse 3, He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair. Oh, man, you're so smart. I thought I'd sneak that by you. See, he was hair lifted. Get it? Yeah. And the spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seed of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. Now, some say this was literal. Literal. That Ezekiel was literally picked up by his hair and physically transported. Others point out the emphasis on it being uh, visions of God throughout this section. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, God could have done it either way. I think it's kind of cool if you know if you're the elders and all of a sudden you're just you know Ezekiel's lifted by his hair out of there. Uh, but it, it's probably a vision that he's having while he's talking to these guys. Either way, it was real. Whether physically or spiritually, Ezekiel was transferred to these scenes. What is this image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy? Well, in verse 4, it says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw on the plain. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there north of the altar gate was this image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, Do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again and you will see greater abominations. Uh, It's almost hard to believe, but the Jews had constructed an image, an idol right in the temple at the door of the north gate of the inner court. It provoked the Lord to jealousy and he's indicating that He's going to be leaving the temple. And that's what these opening chapters are about. The fact that his glory is going to leave the temple. He's going to allow the temple to be destroyed uh, because uh, of what they're doing. He was provoked to jealousy. It would be like an adulterer bringing home his adulteress to have sex while the wife watched. It was a great abomination that would eventuate in the Lord going far away from his sanctuary. Maybe the fact that the idol was placed near the inner court made it somehow seem more acceptable. Christians sometimes become enamored with worldly or even cultic practices. Instead of rejecting them, they bring them into the church to give them credibility. I mean, you, know, you see something and you think, wow, that's, that's horrible, that's terrible, that's, you know, that's astral projection and and then the next thing you know you're reading Richard Foster's book The Celebration of Discipline touted by Christians all over the world as a great spiritual work everybody should read it and uh, i remember his chapter where he talks about leaving your body during a christian meditation freaked me out he talks about sitting in a comfortable position and and you know with your hands on your on your knees and then at a certain point you turn your hands over to symbolize that you're ready uh, and then you wait. There's a kind of a it's all. It's funny if it wasn't tried, but he is kind of a thing where he says, wave goodbye to your body and assure yourself that you'll be back. Now, we think that's weird, right? But uh, thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people uh, have that book at home and ta- they love the celebration of discipline. It was a video series that. Uh, swept through the church and it's it's still you know he's a christian mystic everything's all right if you're a christian mystic you're you're in some kind of a new realm some kind of a mystical realm that you know is okay and so and there are a number of practices you know and uh, there always will be as long as uh you know we're still here on the earth people get excited about something and they say well that you know uh, let's let's use that for god's glory let's bring that in I remember having a conversation years ago with a pastor here in town about Paul Yangi Cho's book, The Fourth Dimension. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it was crazy. Uh, and and uh, how the, the theory of the book was that there is a fourth dimension, the spiritual dimension, and that the cults and the occult has learned how to tap into the fourth dimension and that Christians now need to learn how to tap into the fourth dimension, because, like the force, the fourth dimension is neutral, and it can be you can be a good Jedi or you can be a bad jedi you know uh, and, and really that 's what it is and i, I couldn 't believe I was having that conversation you know let 's tap into why should the devil have all the mystical experiences you know why can 't we tap and there 's a story in that book about how he went into to, to solicit funds from a Christian businessman. And because of his Jedi mind tricks, he got all the money that he needed to, for his project. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. These are not the droids you are seeking, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and, and I'm, you're sitting here thinking, what's wrong with just the old, good old-fashioned power of the Holy Spirit? You know, I mean, what, what happened to that? And so we bring these things into the church. We give them Christian names or we sell them in Christian bookstores. or we do, And it's, it's bringing this idolatry into the temple. And we say, well, it's okay because it's here. It's, it's not out there anymore. It's here. And it's, it's something that we want to tap into. And it's real and it works. And so let's be doing these things. And uh, God says it's an abomination. It's like bringing your girlfriend home when you're married and asking your wife to, to accept that, I think. 99.9% of us would think that's weird. And the other 0.001% needs counseling. Uh, you know, so that's what the Lord saying. I was jealous. And I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the sanctuary because of what they're doing. Now, as bad as they're having set up an idol, oh, this is just the beginning. Verse 7, So he brought me to the door of the court. When I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. He said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. This was the original hole in the wall gang. As an alternate title. But anyway, let's talk briefly about the hole in the wall. It may not seem like much, but it indicates that the temple was what? In disrepair. They had time to build an idol out there, but they overlooked the upkeep of the temple. Now, our application would be the spiritual adornment of the uh, inner man or woman. That ought to be priority one. We ought to be working hard, disciplining ourselves to adorn ourselves spiritually with those spiritual qualities that the Lord says are beautiful, those things that are of grace and mercy and forgiveness and all. Anything and everything physical comes after the spiritual man or woman is cared for. Now, even though our emphasis is on that spiritual person, the physical things God provides ought to reflect our passion for him too. There's nothing wrong with keeping, say, the church clean and inviting. I've performed weddings at too many churches that are just uh, just a mess. Uh, you know, I don't know. You you rent these churches, and it's like, wow, who who lives here? You know, I mean, well, what? It's like, you know, is there? Does nobody go to? Does nobody notice that the garbage hasn't been? You know, and that there's dusting, and that there. I mean, it's you know, it's one thing uh, to to do your best, and and but it's another thing to just ignore things. I mean, a lot of churches. Maybe it's because I'm just obsessive. Uh, but I mean, you know. You notice things, right? You go to people's houses and you notice things. That's why I never let anybody in our house. They notice things. No, I'm just kidding. Not about noticing things, about letting them in. But anyway, garage, yes, but not the house. Any, I'm just kidding. But, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, I love the way the the building here is kept. And, 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 you know, it doesn't become an idol. It's not something that you want to do above ministering to people. You know, spiritual adornment, but how we take care of the things that God gives us and what we do with the things God gives us, I think, say something about our relationship with the Lord as well. Now, the idea of Ezekiel digging a hole and discovering a door, this indicates to me that this was sort of a secret activity in an area kept somewhat private. Uh, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, the temple was a big place uh, and there were areas that uh, were somewhat private. Now, on the walls, he saw representations of creeping things and abominable beasts. Uh, The abominable part, you understand, just means they were given over to this idolatry. And so this is just a collection of different beasts and animals. And commentators are almost universal in saying this was a form of worship that they borrowed from Egypt. Now, this is always interesting to me because Egypt was the place the Hebrews were held captive For 400 years. Not these guys, but their ancestors. It was a place of bondage and captivity and hard labor. Now, in a sense, they returned to Egypt, at least philosophically, to what they had been delivered from. If you were saved later in life, chances are there are a few things you were delivered from. What a a glorious experience that was, wasn't it? For those of you who were just in bondage to some habit, Uh, you know, whatever it might be, and and to just come out of that clean and, and in the grace of God. What a beautiful thing that was. If you were saved at a young age, you might not ever have gotten enslaved to certain habits, but still you could say that you were delivered from them in the sense that you were kept from being enslaved by them. And so God is a God of deliverance for His people. He's either delivered you from them actually or he's kept you from them maybe you had a godly upbringing or godly parents and you you never got enslaved and there was a deliverance that way does it make any sense to return to those things or to turn to them well no it doesn't but we can do it uh, and we do against good spiritual sense uh there's probably a million reasons for it usually Uh, we think that we can stand when we really are going to fall. Uh, To me, the key reason is, as you continue to walk with the Lord, you feel like God is strengthening you. You become a stronger Christian. Uh, And so you think, well, some of the things that I was doing weren't as bad as others. They're not really sin. I gave it up back then because it was really holding me back, chaining me down. I, I didn't feel like it was bringing glory to the Lord. But no, nah, it's kind of neutral, you know. Now, I, if I, nine out of ten Christians, you know, don't have a problem with it. It's in a gray area. And so, you know, I'll just go back into that and, and uh, allow... You know, I can stand in, in, in that area. I won't, I won't fall. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But, why, you know, why return to things that God has delivered you from? Uh, it, you know, there's plenty to do as a Christian. There's plenty of ministry... Uh, Plenty of learning, plenty of devotion, plenty of whatever you want to do as a Christian. Uh, Why turn to those things if you've never been enslaved? Uh, You know, why can't you? Why don't we ever learn from people? You know, we never learn from people who uh, turn to sin or who are enslaved by these various things. We always think that we're going to be the exception. Uh, And so these guys, you know, uh, turning back to Egypt, as it were, and trying to have what I'm sure they thought was the best of both worlds. Verse 11, "...and there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up." Now the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling council of seventy isn't formed until after the Babylonian captivity. So that's not these guys. These are just the regular old 70 elders, the men who uh, were the representatives for the nation of Israel. Incense usually represents prayers ascending to God. These guys were praying instead to the gods of Egypt. They were prayerless and worse than prayerless because they were praying to other gods. These 70 men ought to have been seeking God on behalf of the people. Instead, as a group, they were dabbling with the things that would bring Israel into bondage. Uh, you know, there's, there's just something really powerful about the simple disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, and and if, if a person starts to get bored praying... With prayer and needs to be, you know, uh, starts moving into other things because prayer is so boring. Um, you know, that's that's like telling your best friend or your wife or your husband that you know I'm just bored talking to you. You know, I I don't want to talk to you anymore. We need to go to a seminar about how we, you know, and this and this and uh, you know. Uh, Prayer, it's an exciting thing. It's a communication with God. And so these guys don't say, you know, yeah, we represent the people, but we don't really want to talk to God about the people or talk to the people about God when there are lizards we can, you know, uh, paint on the wall. And, you know, uh, you know, what's your idol? Well, mine's an iguana, you know. And, and so you have all these kind of strange animals, frogs and gnats and flies and, uh, you know, all the things that God destroyed, really. And, in Egypt, uh, I was J. Vernon McGee is the one I would credit. First, I heard him talk about how the plagues that God brought against the the, uh, the uh, Egyptians were they were all their gods, like this fly that's demon possessed, fly that's going to go on my nose. This is go on YouTube. If it gets closer, I'm going to suck it in so we can put it on YouTube. <laughs> Pastor sucks in fly, keeps preaching. What a hair lifting experience that was, you know. So anyway. Uh, is that the is, the, is that the fly that was on the thing? Yeah, he was up there before bothering me, and now you know I sent him vibes, and now he's coming to me. But uh, I quit using grease in my hair; it must just be my oily skin, my olive oil charm. But anyway, and so you know the 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 plagues were against the gods of, of Egypt. They destroyed the gods of Egypt. You want to worship frogs? Have some frogs. Here they come. You know, you want gnats. You want, you know, and so, so, here are these guys. They should be praying, and instead they're doing their incense jive to these, you know, bugs and scarabs and whatever kind of weird thing that they could have. Now, Shaphan is mentioned. He was the scribe who had rediscovered the book of the law and read it to King Josiah, uh, and, and, and you know, and it brought revival under King Josiah. It was that activity that fueled a reform and a revival. Now his offspring, several generations removed, Jazaniah, stood in the midst of the 70 elders. He may have been some sort of a leader among them, someone they look to for insight into these Egyptian gods and practices. In fact, if there is a correlation to Shaphan... Uh, reading the word of the Lord to Josiah, it could be that Jazaniah was reciting to them how to worship Egypt style. I mean, somebody had to rediscover this. And, you know, this, I'm speculating here, but it's clear that Jazaniah had something to do. And, and the thing that the word wants you to get here is that godly heritage. But, man, he was blowing it. Uh, he had turned away from following the Lord uh, to something else. And now I've completely lost my place. How does that happen? You know, I love electronics. Uh, Fill in here for a minute while I... Okay, here I go. Well, no, it's not page 11. Oh, yeah, there it is. Man, oh, I know, I pushed the wrong button. This is my Sony PRS uh, 505. Verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the... It's the fly, really. I think the fly landed there. That's what happened. It's the Lord of the flies, Beelzebub. I have a funny story about Raul Reese, but I'll save it for another time. No, I'll tell you right now. I was listening. I was a young Christian and... Uh, you guys know who Raul Reese is. He's a, he's a wonderful pastor in Southern California, one of the Jesus Movement guys. And he has trouble with words. He's a Hispanic background, and he just says crazy things, you know. I, I mean, they're great. He's really, I mean, <clears throat> really brings conviction. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, but he just, he's noted for saying just crazy things. And so one time he was in the Old Testament, he was talking about uh, Baal. And he said that Baal, he, he was going, Baal is the God of the flies. Actually, in the Hebrew, He's the God of the fly poop. (laughs) Because the people, they would see these little things on the poop, and then they would turn into flies, and it was like life coming from poop. (laughs) That was one of those moments I talked about earlier that I'll never forget as a Christian. Does anybody have them chopsticks? I'll get this fly while he's... I'll do like a Mr. Miyagi thing. Verse 12. We only have, uh, you know, a couple more minutes now. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Some have interpreted this verse to mean that each of the 70 was doing this at home, in secret, or even in their mind. But it seems more likely... To indicate that in this secret fellowship hall, they each had their favorite idol. I think that's what's being described. (coughs) Their newfound theology was, the Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. The first phrase diminishes God, while the second accuses Him. They diminished God by saying, the Lord does not see us. If He didn't see them, then He was not omnipresent Lose one of the omnis and you lose them all. Omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. And so this was just their assault on the nature and character of God. God is not who He has revealed Himself to be in the Bible. He is somehow less than that. And then it says, the Lord has forsaken the land. That's an accusation. It accuses God of breaking His promises to Israel. It was a reaction to their subjugation and suffering. Notice how one-sided it is as an accusation. Yes, God had made them unconditional promises regarding the land. He's still keeping those promises today. Israel's back in her land, even though the Hebrews still have not repented and turned to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. There were also conditional promises, and that's what they're leaving out in this accusation. Disobedience would bring discipline. This supposed problem of suffering is an argument or an accusation that is frequently raised against God. It doesn't take into account man's free will and the entrance of sin into the universe by the exercise of that free will. What is the answer to the accusation? Take a long look at Jesus. He came and suffered as a man to overcome sin. He suffered and died so that you and I might live. Why does suffering continue? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Suffering continues because God delays his deserved judgment upon sin, waiting for more to be saved. Verse 13, and he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, this is the only mention of Tammuz in the Bible. From what I can gather, he was a Babylonian agriculture and fertility god. He was thought to die each autumn and winter, and then he would return to life each spring following the course of nature. It was the time of year that in their worship of Tammuz, the women ritually wept at his demise. Oh, Tammuz, come back, please. You know, and then they would have all these different rituals. Weeping, though, wasn't all that took place. Vile, immoral sexual practices accompanied the worship of Tammuz. Verse 15, Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again. You will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now, in the service of the temple, the priests were divided into 24 groups called courses. Each group or course served in sequence. There were too many priests to all serve at once, kind of like our usher crews. Too many ushers to serve all at once. Uh, and so we've divided them into courses. I think we should just start calling them courses. Why not? Well, I want to be biblical. I always want to be as biblical as possible. Uh, and so they—that's what there were twenty-four courses of priests. The number here is twenty-five, so that would represent all the courses of the priests plus the high priest. And so what we're learning here is that all the priesthood had literally turned their backs upon God while they were worshiping. The sun, they just turned around and and turned their backs to the presence of God. You have to understand, God was still present in the Holy of Holies. His glory was there. His physical manifestation was there. And they turned their back to that to worship the sun. Verse 17, he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Ezekiel had seen a lot of abominations. They were not trivial in the sense that they greatly affected the daily lives of the people of God. Uh, whether a people worship, what a people worship affects society. You know, we, there's a myth that we promulgate or promote. I don't know what promulgate means, so I'm going to use the word Promote. I think it's the right word, but it's one of those big words. Uh, there's a myth that you know, it doesn't matter what a person believes, you know, and we want to keep religion out of the different you know, social things, and everybody's going to be separate you know, with their own religion and stuff like that. But it, it makes a difference within society whether people worship and what people worship. Violence is a sign that people are no longer worshiping God. It indicates they have no regard for the fact that man was made in the image of God. They're no longer respecting life from a biblical standpoint. And the end result of that is, rather than peace, is violence. And so it should concern us that our nation is filled with so much violence, both real and what we would call gratuitous. Gratuitous violence doesn't make it okay. And I've challenged myself on this. I love gratu- gratuitous violence like the next guy, you know. Man, that guy's going to get it at the... All the good movies are movies where somebody's just going to get it at the end, you know. I mean, you know, he's, wow, you know, yeah, yeah, this is it. And then they usually get it two or three or four times, you know. They die and they're not really dead and, you know, and stuff. And, it's like, and uh, you know, it's just... But violence, that kind of, you know, it... it, it Awakening that kind of sentiment and just the real violence in our society, not a good sign. Not a good sign. It indicates we have less and less regard for the fact that man was made in the image of God. Violence was one of the reasons God judged the world by the great flood. Uh, It's no small matter in the eyes of God. The Lord said, they have returned to provoke me to anger. The people took it for granted. God would defend the temple no matter their spiritual condition they were provoking him. Go to the temple, there's an idol. There's a secret room where the elders have their scarabs and lizards on the wall where they're doing incense to their... Outside, their women are, are wailing for tammuz. Uh The priests are, with their backs to the, to the sanctuary, worshiping the sun. Um, these are acts of provocation, provoking God to leave. It's evident that he wasn't well wanted there, that he wasn't welcome there in his own house. In fact, it says here they were putting the branch to their nose. Oh! I don't know what that means. <laughs> Commentators have no idea what that means. And I, you, I'm not even going to give you some of the things that are so weird. You know, you know, Look that up. Just Google that if you're brave. Make sure your moderate safe search filter is on. Uh, But there's just a lot of strange ideas. What what it is the equivalent of is what we would say, thumbing the nose at God. I think it was a real thing. It had to do with a ritual or some sacrifice or something. but, But this was literally, they were just thumbing their nose at God. Yeah, you're God, we don't care. We've got the temple, you're stuck here, basically. They're saying, you chose us, you brought us here, we have the temple, you're in the box. Watch us. We're going to build idols and worship the sun and wail to Tammuz because he's cool. And and God says, well, you're just provoking me and you know what? I'm going to leave. Therefore, I will also act in fury, verse 18. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. What kind of a God would do that? Well, I keep putting this kind of declaration in the image of a child who deserves corporal punishment. If they've earned their spanking, no amount of crying can change the inevitable. You hear them, but you will not hear them in the sense of changing your mind because a line has been crossed and there's only one possible outcome. Those of you who spank or have spanked your children, you know what I'm talking about. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do it. You're begging them not to do it. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. I'm only going to tell you 27 more times not to do that. You know, or whatever your limits are and stuff. And then there's a clear demarcation. Please don't stick your tongue out at me. I'm going to have to... You know, if you stick your tongue out at me, I'm going to have to spank you. All right, get a spank. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I didn't do it. I, I didn't understand. I thought you meant... Tomorrow, uh, you know, uh, or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. The argument. I'm listening now. I'm listening. Everything's fine. I'm. It's. It's over. Please, you know. And but you know, it's. It, you can't listen to that. You hear it, but you can't listen to it. You can't hear it because this is the only possible remedy now. And, and we're going to deal with it. And so that's all God is saying. Only on a national scale, it gets pretty hairy. Uh, you know, He doesn't take them each individually out. Uh, To the woodshed as it were, he brings Babylon in and says, hey, you know, this is a national spanking and it's going to go pretty badly. Ah, but afterwards, the discipline yields its pleasant fruits. And so Ezekiel was hair lifted to Jerusalem. You and I, we're going to be airlifted to the new Jerusalem, aren't we? The resurrection and rapture of the church is imminent. There's also a bunch of uh, allegory and image here that I won't go into. I'll, I'll leave you to figure that out because it's fun. But essentially, the Jews come in and they set up an idol in the temple, and the Lord's glory leaves uh, in the future. The Antichrist is going to come in and set up an idol in the temple and the Lord's glory is going to come at the end of that. And instead of his people leaving, they're going to come to him. And so there's some parallels that you can work out. But as far as we're concerned, we're going to be airlifted to the new Jerusalem. The resurrection and the rapture of the church is imminent. Meantime, survey your life for anything that is causing or might cause spiritual damage. Get rid of it. Get ready. Amen? Amen.